Well, hello, everyone. This is Charlie. This is the podcast, To Hell and Back. This is, uh, what is it, Wednesday, September 19th, 2018. And um, I'm going to be teaching today uh, several things. I'm excited to get into this. There's some things that are partially formed in my head that I'm thinking about that I want to share with you, and then some things that are really more solid and a song in the middle of all of that that I wrote today. So, um, I think this is about podcast number 30, it's either 29 or 30, in, on my website, uh, charlieswenson.com. And since I began this on podcast number 25, I'm just going through the sets of skills in DBT. Uh, step by step, but not covering every single skill in the detail I would in a skills class. I don't have that amount of time that I'm spending on this, but, you know, covering everything um, in the service of making these more accessible, more available to anyone who wants to listen and, and, and think about it and try these things out for coping with uh, everyday life challenges as well as with the uh, hell that comes from, um, I guess you might say, the slings and arrows of misfortune in our lives, uh, some of which are pretty heavy arrows. I first covered the six core mindfulness skills, which were all about how to use awareness and attention to get control of your mind by finding your way to wise mind with these six skills. wise mind being the state of mind in which we make our best decisions. Uh, Next, I covered uh, the six types of crisis survival skills. These are tools for getting through a crisis without making things worse for ourselves or for people around us. Um, And uh, when I say six types of crisis survival skills, that's because Within each type, within most of the type of the six types, there are many uh, component skills within that type, and I'll be referencing back to these uh, later. Both of these sets of skills. Now, when Linehan first put together the manual, um, she had one. There was one module, as there still is, called Distress Tolerance Module, and it though it actually was made up of two sets of skills grouped together in that module. One set, or the ones that I've covered, which are the crisis survival skills, the stop skills, uh, the pros and cons, the tip skills, the distracting, self-soothing, and improve the moment skills. It's a set of skills that are for coping uh, with a crisis uh, level of distress. And then she had another set that were skills for accepting reality. And in fact, in her first iteration of the manual, just before it finally got published, it was called the um, Distress Tolerance Reality Acceptance Module. Reality acceptance is key to it, and it's it's uh, it's interactive. It goes hand in hand with the crisis survival skills, um, as I'm going to explain shortly. And and also the reality acceptance skills are right next to and interactive with um, the uh, mindfulness skills, which I'm also going to reference. So in the previous podcast, I went over the first three of the six reality acceptance skills. They were called radical acceptance. By the way, I have two separate podcasts uh, 
totally devoted to radical acceptance. Before I got started on these skills, you can see them under their title, their name, in uh, the podcasts that are uh, archived on my website. A second one, uh, Turning the Mind, and a third one called uh, Willingness uh, versus Willfulness, but emphasizing willingness. Um, and I spent time last time uh, getting through willingness, talking about, you never get through willingness, but talking about willingness, introducing you to willingness, um, and a little on willfulness. Um, and then, so I want to say a little more about willingness and willfulness and then cover the other three. Um, I'm hoping that's going to leave me enough time to do a couple of other things. Uh, one is just going to be to provide you a perspective on these sets of skills that we've covered so far. Why are they together? What do they have to do? What, what do they provide for a human being? And why, why is it so helpful to have them on board when you're trying to do the other skills we're going to be doing um, in later podcasts? Um, so, willingness, willingness, willingness. Um, what I taught last time is that willingness involves a skillful, it's, it's really both a um, made up of components, skillful things to do, but it's also a big idea uh, that you're enacting in, in the moment. And that big idea is that there are kind of like uh, laws and realities of the universe that we are interconnected with by being humans in the universe. And we're always being, um, and we're always encountering these laws. I mean, I don't mean written down laws, but the way the world works. And when we encounter these, uh, we don't always like the direction of things that things are going. Um, and yet, uh, that's how the universe, that's, that's the, the plate, you might say, that the universe is serving up to us at that moment. And so sometimes the wise path, <clears throat> the path of our wise mind, is to accurately read, see those currents and those laws and the way the universe works in that situation and be willing to, and have a willingness to go with them rather than to set yourself apart from them uh, and fight them or fix them or uh, sit on your hands and do nothing about them because because you're resentful of them. Um, so you kind of put on one end of the spectrum will, willfulness, which is sitting on your hands and uh, refusing to do stuff or atta attacking what is actually there, um, and but not in a way that's actually good at problem solving. And I want to make a further point about this. Um, and willingness is recognizing, oh, it's like saying to yourself, oh, that's how things go here. Oh, that's what I'm learning. Oh, that's that's what's happened. That's how things are done here. And then you say, okay, well, let me consider just kind of like going with that. You know, that's how it is. Just reminding me of, you know, I I um, when I was 21 and I left college after my junior year, and I bummed around. I mean, that's not a nice way to say it because I actually thought I was doing much more than bumming around. But I was going around. I was camping in New Hampshire and in Canada and in northern New York uh, by myself and reading and thinking and walking around, hiking, swimming. And it was just a glorious uh, time punctuated by intense bouts of loneliness and some discoveries in my mind about things. But, you know, it was that kind of thing. Um, 
And then when I came back after several months into the Boston area, and I moved in, uh, I took a job at a healthcare center, and I, I think I've mentioned this in a previous content, con, con, podcast. And I um, lived, and I moved in, I, I went, to, I saw, I put up a sign in a grocery store nearby, and I got a place to live, and it was a rental room in a house, um, and in that house were, it was a house of an African-American family that had moved up from South Carolina that didn't really have much money, uh, that had a lot of troubles in the family, uh, but also incredible amount of sweetness. And, uh, and I moved in with them on the third floor where, uh, it was, av- it was available because none of the kids, none of the eight kids in the family who all lived there wanted to go upstairs. They thought it was, might be haunted up there. Uh, they all also liked just sleeping together in the same gigantic room. Uh, there, and uh, so I moved in with them. And just as one tiny example of what there could be a thousand of, I, I had I ate at that point a certain way. I was eating a lot of like uh, organic. I was eating organic. I was eating brown rice. I was eating vegetarian. I was having yogurt, which I would make of my own, and, and some granola. And all these things that, you know, was a hippie kind of diet, a, a vegetarian diet, an organic diet, an earthy, crunchy diet. And I was that way, and I moved in, and uh, I had my little corner of the refrigerator where, we, where I could keep all of my things. Meanwhile, the way things worked at the house, it was people were eating all the time, you know, sweet potato pie, collard greens, uh, um... A pig would be a pig's head would be uh, roasted every uh, every couple weeks, and there'd be lots of meats from that, um, and uh, ham, and uh, lots of things that are not what I usually ate, or at least I didn't usually eat in that southern style, kind of soul food style. But that's what I that's what they were eating, and I thought, no, I can't eat that, and I felt like I was like a different, I was an alien. Of course, I I was doing what I was doing because I thought it was the right way to do things, but. From their point of view, they were very sad for me. Like, what's what's wrong with this poor man that he has to eat this stuff, you know? And I'd say I just gradually uh, joined the group. Um, I didn't do it in one fell swoop, but um, I kind of became willing because I was so set apart and so different and in so many ways. And I would say week by week and month by month, I became uh, more and more assimilated uh, with their lives uh, in, and this was just in one way, and my little corner of the refrigerator was gradually became not necessary at all, and I ate mostly all these other things. I did put on a few pounds, but not bad, and it was delicious. Um, that would be will- willingness. I'm willing to go with that flow. Then it was more effective there. It was more connected, and when you are willful, you're really setting yourself apart from the laws of the universe and doing things your own way, and there is a certain edge to it that's kind of stubborn. And I want to point out the difference, though. Let's say there's willingness at one place, which is really just opening your heart and opening your mind to the possibility that the law, that you could go with the laws of the universe, or you can interact with the laws of the universe and disagree with some of them, but you're still more in it rather than outside of it looking in. Um, that's willingness. Then there's willfulness that I had just been talking about, and it may look like sometimes like it's the attempt to fix things, but actually it doesn't have that spirit. It's somewhere in between 
being willing at one end of the spectrum and problem solving at the other end. With willingness, you jump in with both feet in living in the universe, going with the universe, or, or interacting with the universe, disagreeing with the universe, but you are part of it. You're clearly part of it. You think of yourself as part of it. You're interdependent. You're an inter, you're interbeing with the rest of the universe. With willfulness, you're not. You're setting yourself apart by opposing things. With problem solving, you're jumping in Ideally, with both feet, with 100, these are 100% types of solutions, problem solving and willingness. Uh, and you're going in and figuring out how to commit yourself totally to fix something because that's the way it's going to work best. Um, but in doing that, you want to also be able to move back to willingness and accept what needs to be accepted. So you get it? That's the idea. Um, okay, I'm going to skip some examples now, though if anybody wanted to write me about any examples... Uh, please feel free. And if you want to run anything by me about this, there's just lots of things that come up every day of your life. Um, if you're alert to the issue of willingness versus willfulness, you will encounter it every hour somewhere. Um, and you'll have a choice to make. So today I wrote a little song trying to capture what I mean by this choice that you make. Uh, I usually write these songs about DBT in a way that... Uh, I've always written them where there's a tune that I'm just building on from something else. But this one has my own silly little tune. Um, that might have been a little judgmental because I'm a little anxious about this. Um, I've only been through it once and, uh, and I wrote it. So here we go. Uh, this is jumping in. Um, when we don't like the way things are going today. When the universe is just unfair And we just want to quit Or at most just to sit on our hands And emit a stubborn stare All we want is control Over how things roll <clears throat> It's not so much to ask But it's not just not the way that things are going today and to fight it is a tiring task. Oh, why can't it be me, me, me? I just want to be free, free, free to do stuff my way, way, way. Can't you just give me a break today? Well, it may not be fair, but it's not too rare. That the universe provides our meals. Out comes the food, whether bad or good, no matter how it makes us feel. Well, if we're wise, we might realize that the choice is in our hands. We can sit, we can stare, wave our fists in the air, and persist with a list of demands, or we can be free, free, free by eating it willingly, by eating wholeheartedly, submitting can set us free. So the moral of the song is that if we sing along, 
I'm sorry, I got interrupted there. So the moral of the song is that if we sing along, even when a song seems dumb, we'll be less lonely, not be the one and only, sitting on the sidelines on our thumb. Just noticing we're willful is itself pretty skillful. It reminds us we're the master of our fate. We can rail against the meal, or we can notice how we feel, and then willingly clean all that's on the plate. The universe, the universe will serve you. Meals that unnerve you. When you face them, each one, remember this song, which is done. <laughs> That's it. It was hard enough to do this song and then to have interruptions. I think what was happening. Oh my God, here it is again. I think I'm being called about whether this, uh, whether this is working alright. Um, I, uh, now I think, wanted to let you know that everything's okay. Okay, yeah, <laughs> sorry, everything's okay. Um, so that's the song. Now I just want to tell you, when I say, I, I wrote this song this afternoon, and there was this person doing a project in our house for us. And, uh, I said, hey, you want to hear a song? So I told, I sang her this song. Um, and her response was that it was cute. It's not the response I wanted to hear. Um, but I took it in. And then, thank God, she went on and talked about a client she had had the previous night. When she took on a job that she wanted to do because she wanted, she needed some extra money, but she didn't really want to do the job. It was more than, than her energy budget allowed, and it was the end of a day, and she was supposed to go there, and it was going to take two or three hours, and it got to be the end of the day, she said, and she felt like canceling. So not an unusual thing for us all to face. And then she thought about the money. And she thought about that she had said she would do it. And then she decided, okay, I'm going to do it. And what she told me was that at that moment is when she actually practiced willingness, uh, which kicked in. Oh, my God. I keep getting these calls uh, about this. Um, the willingness kicked in, and she just decided, okay, if I'm going there to do it, I'm going to jump in with both feet. I'm going to do it all the way. Uh, I'm just going to get energized and do it, you know, as if I'm into it. And the next thing she knew, she was into it. She threw herself in, and then she said uh, that she realized that the song was about that, and she said she realizes that we have choices. She has choices all the time. Um, and uh, there's always this question of whether to throw ourselves in or not. So this other thing about willingness is just um, the degree to which we throw ourselves in to what will work, what will be effective, and what will get us to our goals. And it was a, a beautiful example of that. So, I've said enough for now about willingness and willfulness. Next skill, there's three more in this module of, uh, or in the reality acceptance skills. The next two are interrelated. They're both the same kind of thing with different parts of the body because they have to do with accepting reality with our bodies. You know, we've done reality acceptance uh, with our minds, uh, radical acceptance, turning the mind. And these are not only just with our minds, but the emphasis is our minds and our thinking. But um, the emphasis here is purely body. Like, what would it mean if we are practicing acceptance of what's happening in us or around us 
with our hands. And so this skill is called willing hands. And it's when we, uh, and there's a lot of instructions about just how to do it, but the, the basic idea is pretty simple, and you've probably already done it sometimes, that rather than have your hands held in a way that's tight or in a way that's clenched or in a way that's like facing the ground, you open your hands completely up, stretch your palms out, open your hands as if you're going to catch whatever falls out of the sky, and you just open them up with this sense of willingness, this sense of acceptance, this sense of receptiveness. And by doing that, the, the thing that's great about this, it creates a whole feeling. It starts there, but it might work its way throughout your entire body. Like, what is it for your entire body to take an accepting posture? And the important thing here is that whatever you do with your body, your mind, your brain is watching it and responding to it. So if you do you use your hands that way, your brain starts to interpret this almost automatically as, oh, okay, we're going into acceptance mode now. This is okay. All right, we're relaxing, we're accepting, we're receiving, uh, we're letting things be. And there's a kind of like go with it as opposed to go against it. So it's very much in line with willingness. It's very much in line with radical acceptance. Um, but actually, you don't even need to think of those things. You just use your hands in a willing way. Right? You can do it while you're uh, standing somewhere, uh, while you take a walk outside. You could do it while you're sitting. I just was doing it just now. Um, and you can do it uh, uh, laying down uh, where you open your hands up and just Close your eyes and just feel accepting of whatever's going to come into your hands. Um, so there is the willing hands skill. And now there's uh, the, the similar concept, just done differently because it's a different part of the body, is called half smile. So you, with half smile, here's the thing not to be uh, done in about half smile. It doesn't really mean half smile in the sense of having a smile and then cutting it in half. Um, it's, you know, I've said before in teaching sometimes that where I grew up in uh, Oregon, Portland, part of my growing up years, high school years, were in Portland, Oregon, where the Rose Festival princesses and Rose Festival would be, and there'd be a big parade, and at the end of the parade, if they've been waving and smiling the whole time, they just look, ugh, they're trying to smile. They're forcing their face into a smile. Their face looks exhausted. And they, it, you might say it's a half smile, but that is not what this is about at all. It's kind of the opposite. There's no forcing of the half smile. You just kind of close your eyes, and sometimes it's helpful to massage your face all over, get the muscles kind of loosened up and relaxed and heavier, and just let your face be. Um let your neck just be relaxed. Let your shoulders be relaxed. So everything kind of from the top of your head down to your shoulders, you're just kind of allowing to settle into a relaxed state a little bit like the equivalent of willing hands. In fact, you might do it along with willing hands. And you're just letting things in. There's no, nothing resembling a smile going on there up to that moment. So you're just letting your face adopt a very uh, relaxed posture uh, I think the best word that, uh, for me is to call it serene, just to relax and have serenity in my face and my neck and my shoulders and just be that way. And then the final step 
of this half smile thing is then just curl the corners of your lips up a little bit. Just pull it up a little bit on both sides. So the, a little like a Mona Lisa smile or like the smile that you see on some Buddha statues. So it isn't really quite a smile. It's just a relaxed face with pulling up these uh, edges of your lips. And that seems to add a little bit to the sense of serenity for whatever God knows, whatever reason, probably associated with things that we've seen or learned, but maybe it's purely physiological. Now, you've got these skills, willing hands and half smile, available. They're unbelievably helpful if you need them at a certain moment. If you're going through a moment where you are rattled by reality or what you're facing, what you've just learned, what you're going into, I'm thinking, for instance, you know, in the United States these days, we're all anticipating there might be an upcoming uh, hearing in front of uh, the Senate uh, uh, Judicial uh, Committee uh, about the Supreme Court justice candidate and this person, that the woman that's accusing him of uh, sexually, uh, uh, of trying to rape her in high school. And, and I'm just imagining both of them going into this hearing in front of the entire country if it happens and how they really need half smile and they really need willing hands. They really need a lot of stuff, both of them. Um, and uh, because it, it's just going to be a, a, an emotional onslaught of things and challenges and uh, things that are going to be hard to take sometimes. So that would be a time that you would do it if you happen to be trying to become a Supreme Court justice. I'm sure that'll happen to a lot of you. Um, or anything in your own life that would be the equivalent of that. Or just you're about to go have a difficult conversation with a friend and you've been avoiding it or a partner or somebody you're close to about the relationship, something you've been avoiding saying for a long time and now you want to talk about it. You need to build in the infrastructure in yourself of being able to um, have willing hands, uh, have half-smile, have places to go in you that open up space, uh, that provide some cushioning uh, so that you can be more effective and more present in doing something that's as hard as that. So those are, those are two more skills. There are lots of recommendations in the skills manual of how and when and where to practice them, like doing half smile and willing hands while, in, while imagining and thinking about somebody that you are furious with, where you start to narrow down into what is it you're furious about this person about, and you maintain your willing posture and your half smile posture, and you bring this to mind, and you start to build on this and think about how did this person become this way? And does this person have other qualities? And and what is it this person gets to me, gets under my skin in the following way? And sort of, you just expand and you stay with and soften your hard-edged view of a certain person, if you can. I'm not saying you always can do it, and there's times that you don't want to do that. But if you are doing that, that would be one way to use half-smile. Then there's one more here. Um, this is a big one, and I'm going to say a few things about it, and that's going to lead into some other comments. Um, this one is called mindfulness of uh, current thoughts. Um, mindfulness of, uh, of current thoughts, and, and Linehan also calls it allowing the mind. It's allowing the mind. And there are several parts to this, several steps to this, it's, it's, and it's, it's already present 
if you've been studying and practicing the six mindfulness skills, because if you observe, if you use the skill of observing by observing your thoughts as they pass through your awareness, you use the skill of describing if you are to, if you're describing your thoughts as they pass through awareness. These are anxious thoughts. These are uh, fearful thoughts. These are judgmental thoughts. These are whatever it is you use to describe your thoughts. Um, if you use the one of the other mindfulness skills of non-judgmental, then you're looking at these thoughts, you're experiencing these thoughts, you're describing these thoughts in ways that uh, where you're fully aware uh, of the judgmental aspects of the thoughts and you're realizing that those are just judgments, that that's not necessarily reality. And it probably isn't reality, but it's it's taking the form of a judgment in you. So you, then that allows you to see it as a judgment and maybe let it go as a judgment. And doing things one step at a time, which is called one mindfulness. So these are, those are four component mindfulness skills that if you combine them and direct your attention to your thoughts as if, as if your mind is like a popcorn machine maker and it's just, you're just popping out popcorn, but it's, it's actually thoughts. And there's a million metaphors that people use. You know, there's, there's leaves floating down a river. Those are your thoughts. There's fish inside an aquarium that you're just standing quietly and watching them float or swim around. Those are the thoughts, you know. There are uh, items that are being made in a factory that are coming down a conveyor belt. Those are your thoughts. So all these uh, metaphors capture that you are establishing a relationship with your thoughts where it isn't based on the content of the thoughts. In other words, you're not having a thought and saying, huh, let me explore that thought. Huh. I wonder uh, what brought that thought to mind. There's a little of that you can do with with allowing uh, thoughts. But the idea is not to use thoughts as the royal road to understanding. You're just seeing thoughts as if they were the equivalent of birds that are flying through the sky. And even though you know the bird comes from somewhere, is going somewhere, has content to it, you're just saying, oh, there's a... Uh, a red-winged blackbird flying through the sky. Oh, there's a sparrow. Oh, there's a such-and-such. Such. You're, you're observing them. You're describing them. And you're doing that with your thoughts. And it's a different relationship with thoughts than actually saying, gee, do I believe this thought or not? What's the richness of this thought? Is this thought true? Is this the, How can I unpack this thought? That, those are all different kinds of things. They can be useful, but they aren't this. This is allowing your thoughts to come through your mind, being curious about your thoughts as it comes through your mind, maybe noticing the origination of the thought in your mind and noticing that it passes out of your mind, realizing that thoughts are just nerve, nerves firing. It's just axons and dendrites in patterns uh, you know, that are set off by previous uh, precursors. And the, you know, they're just like going on and on and on. Um, and so you start to relate to your thoughts in that way. And in that way, it's a form of acceptance because you're allowing those thoughts to be without getting torn up by those thoughts. And some of these thoughts might be powerfully painful kinds of thoughts. Um, like, let's say you had the thought, which I had recently with some about someone after an encounter. I just thought, 
later in the day. I thought, oh, God, I am such a bad friend. If I had been a good friend, I would have checked with that person when they weren't feeling well earlier this week. And I would have just been in touch. And I would have been aware of them. And I was so so busy. And I just thoughtless. And this is, I really don't like to be this way. So these thoughts are going in my mind, right? So it's one thing to get torn up by your thoughts. I could I could be walking or doing sitting or whatever. And those thoughts could become increasingly like a cyclone until I'm really um, feeling guilty and I'm, I'm ashamed of myself and I'm hating myself if it goes further. It becomes like a shame cyclone that's set off by some events that set off a few thoughts. Now, that's when you take those thoughts and run with them, and they turn them into emotion. You turn them into action. This skill is to interrupt that cycle by having a different kind of relationship to the thoughts. So let's say I just have the thought, I am a bad friend. I'm a bad friend. I'm a bad daughter. I'm a bad father. I'm a bad son. Uh, I'm a bad person. Uh, any of these things that can really chew us up, they just can chew us away, chew, chew away inside. You could just start to say, ah, there's the thought, I'm a bad friend. Have it, and there's a thought um, that I'm a bad friend. And uh, then it could be that after that, um, it might be possible to have the, um, to say to yourself, um, a thought has entered my mind that I'm a bad friend. You're kind of, you're a little bit detaching yourself from it and saying, ah, oh, there's a thought in my mind that I'm a bad friend. And, and it's associated with a negative emotion. Or you could even take yourself one step further removed from it by saying, I notice that a thought has entered my mind. You hear the difference? A thought has entered my mind is one thing. I notice that a thought has entered my mind. I notice that the thought I am a bad friend has entered my mind. In a way, by putting it that way, just using language that way, you're removing yourself one step further so that you don't just have automatic emotional responses and you don't automatically believe your thought. You're kind of like saying, as you say this, let this thought not define me. Let this thought, I am a bad friend, not define me or define reality. Let me realize this is a thought. And let me be curious about this thought. And actually, another part of one way to use uh, allowing um, thinking like this is to play with the thoughts, to do things to the thoughts, where you start to realize, no, these are like things more than thoughts more than reality. They're things. They're things. The thought, I am a bad person, is a thing in a certain way. And it has the potential of launching an attack on me inside, of me launching an attack on myself with this thought. Or I could just look at this thought as a thing. And I could do things that make it more like a thing that one that one could play with. For instance, I could start to say to myself, let me reverse the words in this thought. Let's see, I am a bad friend, and then I might sit there and think, friends, bad, A, am, I. Friend, am, A. I've never done this one, by the way. I just made this up. But this would be the kind of thing I mean. It's like taking apart the thought. Uh, Another way is you could uh, put the thought to music. You could start saying, 
Oh, what a bad friend I am. I am such a bad friend. There's never been such a bad friend. And I could make it dramatic, and I could exaggerate it, even further than what I think already. I could be saying, I am the most disgusting and horrible friend in the universe. No one has ever had a friend as bad as me, as bad as me, as bad as me. And the more you can do things like that with it, as silly as it sounds, you change your relationship to the thought, I am a bad friend, I am a bad father, I am a bad daughter, I am a, I am crummy at what I do, I'll never amount to anything, I'm hopeless, no one will ever love me, oh no one will ever love me. No one will ever love me the way I'd like to be loved. And you can do that. I mean, with <laughs> you can do it in the shower. You don't have to do it on a podcast. And um, that changes your relationship to the thought because you're treating it as a thing. That's different than saying, oh, my God, I'm a bad friend. In, let me count all the ways I'm a bad friend and actually just get into it and have emotional content there and you're believing it. You know, and of course, when you say, well, it's just a thought, it isn't just a thought. It's a thought that happened to enter your mind, and it entered your mind for a reason. And maybe you did something that you're disappointed about, like the one I was talking about originally, you know, not following up when a friend doesn't feel well. Yes, then I feel that that's a trigger, you know, and it is something I'm disappointed with myself, but it's different than saying I'm a bad friend because a, a uh, a bad friend, I can become a good friend in a minute by calling the person back. So it's really just, how am I going to deal with these thoughts that are doing me in? So I, that doesn't cover everything that the skills manual says about um, about all these different things you can do with your thoughts. But I'm trying to get at the underlying issue. The underlying essential ingredient of this is that you start to treat your thoughts as things that come and go. You don't suppress them. You don't exaggerate them, except in the ways I was just saying. You might play with it. You don't judge them. They're just thoughts. You acknowledge them. Um, you maybe use metaphors about how they're coming and going and what, what they are. You don't analyze them. They're just thoughts. I mean, that's the idea. And So you observe them, and you get curious about them. And you remember that these thoughts don't define you. They are not who you are any more than your emotions are who you are. They are also things that are passing through you. And when you get into a catastrophic way of thinking or a shame cyclone way of thinking, for instance, you now are kind of merging being in intense, severe emotion mind as well as in catastrophic thinking mind. Um, and you and and part of this is to not be blocking them because blocking thoughts that have some potency to them tends to increase their power. So you let the thoughts play. I mean, when I was becoming a psychotherapist, my first training was as a psychoanalyst, and I remember how liberating it was to be able to recognize that I could just have have my thoughts. My mind was a gigantic, spacious playground. And I could notice what I was thinking, and that would tell me things. Uh, and then I could make decisions based on what thoughts came to mind. And rather than saying, oh, I shouldn't be thinking that. Nope, nope, my, my supervisor would never want me to think that. No, I had to develop a spacious, open mind and allow things to come and go, including things that 
I, I might think as actions would be unacceptable or as opinions or as emotions or as dealing or saying anything to anybody might be unacceptable. But, but if you can allow yourself, it takes the, it takes the power out of negative thoughts to be able to just allow them. Strangely, it does. Um, so, another thing you can do while you're uh, observing your thoughts as they come and go, um, you can uh, notice what sensations they're associated with. Like maybe if certain thoughts, I'm a bad friend, might be associated with the tightening of my stomach or sort of flattening and tightening of my facial muscles, which is often where I store, realize that I have tension. And so if you can start to notice, oh yeah, there's, the, there's those thoughts and they're associated with those sensations, you're starting to kind of like tinker with how you work and seeing it objectively uh, in a way that's both intimate and detached at the same time. So that's practicing mindfulness of, of thinking. And there's much more in the manual about that. So you can use that as an entree, but maybe you can then uh, take it further with different specific ideas. But So here's where I want to jump off and make some comments and then do some review. Um, the comment I want to make is this, the main thing. I was thinking about this. Especially as somebody who first trained as a psychoanalyst where, where th- thoughts, dreams, fantasies are the royal road to self-understanding. Um, I learned a lot from that. But it's a very different model, and it's considered a depth psychology model, a depth psychodynamic model. It's a very different model than this behavioral approach to one's inner functioning. And I want to make a point about it because I think um, there can be some unstated misunderstandings. As if you uh, could or could rank order these two general approaches in which is the more deep and which is the more superficial, and of course everybody thinks deep depth is better than superficiality. So I learned to teach the skills. I love teaching the skills because I always like being a teacher, and it really helped me because I was already a psychoanalytic psychotherapist. <clears throat> but this allowed me to be a teacher and a coach. Um, it allowed me to recover part of myself and still be a psychotherapist. But over the years, <clears throat> in my consideration of the skills, I've had, if anything, just an, a constantly growing, just little by little, episode by episode, case by case, skill by skill, appreciation that, you know, if you understand these skills, um, and you understand one skill, and how much that one skill makes a difference in somebody's functioning or the absence of a skill, the presence of a skill, the distorted presence of a skill, the accurate or well-done use of a skill. It's like, you know, it's huge. It's, It's like if you were a hockey player or a figure skater, you have to have learned some really solid skating skills that can then just be forgotten while you do what you do, your artistry or your sport. And you're, but you have learned skating skills and you can rely on them. And so if you're missing a skill, if you're not good at skating backwards, if you're not good at doing a certain kind of step of one foot in front of the other that's called a crossover step, um, it's going to screw up your entire sport or art. Um, and it's one skill. 
And if you remedied that one skill, if you started to bear down on that one thing, it would fix way more than that one skill It because everything would change. Everything would change. If you're a piano player and you can't master a trill of a certain uh, frequency, uh, you're just not good enough at that trill. Then every time you hit that, what, what that when that trill's called for in a piece of music, you get anxious. You don't do it quite right. You come out of it not quite right. It affects your entire playing, your entire uh, stance towards the music in a way. And if you figure out that is the that is actually the biggest problem with my piano playing is the trills, and you just bear down and you just repetitively repetitively practice that trill until it's so automatic. Now you get back to your playing and you realize, oh my God, my whole playing's better. Um, I find skills that way is that we don't think of them sometimes that way. And sometimes I think the fact that we teach so many skills in DBT uh, for over 26 week period or 24, 26 weeks is a downside of DBT skills training because um, it reduces your focus on repetitiveness. That's supposed to take place in the individual therapy and you're supposed to learn these skills in a group. But actually what I find happening in most situations over time is that somebody's just trying to keep up with all the skills you're doing, not perfecting any one skill. And of course, if what you could do is really figure out this person is not very good at this, 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 and this. Therefore, let's attack these four skills with repetitive practices in different situations then you'd find that this is actually a depth treatment. It's a depth treatment because not only would you increase the functioning in that skill area, but things next to it wouldn't any longer have to compensate for the deficit that you've got. And they would change. And also things that are like that skill will get better automatically by generalization of your skills. So I want you to think that these are big deals. These are big deals, and in a way, all of DBT is within these skills because if you look at the content of the skills, almost all DBT strategies are taught as skills in the skills. So really, it's a big package, and it's a depth package, and I really just want to make a case for that and, and for practicing these things. And if you just practice one that you know that you're not very good at. Like, let's say you're not very good at radical acceptance. That's a big one. That's a huge one. That covers a lot of territory. It interacts with all of the observe and describe skills, the non-judgmental skills, the, my, the willingness and, and willfulness skills, the uh, allowing the mind uh, skills. So, you know, it's a big deal. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to do one more thing, and it's I've got 15, 14 minutes to do this. And I really want to make a point that you might not have heard quite this way before, but those of you, if you've done it, a lot of these kind of things, maybe you have. But I think most people haven't quite thought of it this way. I've now gone over the two skills modules, core mindfulness skills, the six skills there, and the distress tolerance skills, six of one type, crisis survival, six of another type, reality acceptance. Just remember six, six, and six. It's kind of cool. All right. Think of these as like three, um, uh, I can't think of what it would be. I wish I was a good artist because I would draw a, a sort of a platform that's being held up by three spiraling legs that are compressible, sort of like coils. 
And so you've got these three powerful sets of skills that are at the bottom of the platform. And they are, um, they function in uh, several ways, and they function in combination with each other. All of the sixes that I just went over, they interact with each other, and they help each other. And if you strengthen a couple of them, it strengthens a couple of more almost automatically. And in order to survive a crisis, even you use the survival crisis survival skills, but even they depend on the fact that you can observe and you can describe and you can be non-judgmental and you can be radically accepting. I mean, because these are all interconnected, they're all interdependent, but on the other hand, they are separate. They're sort of like they are an apparatus of interconnected, interdependent, movable parts. I'll just say that again, because that grabs, that captures what I mean to be saying. These sets of skills in these two modules, all of which are oriented around accepting reality as it is now and coping with it, all of them function as an apparatus, a complex, but not infinite, apparatus of interconnected, interdependent, movable parts, kind of like an engine that's complicated. And so in that engine, they they do lots of things for you. They increase awareness. They increase objectivity. They help you approach reality and cope with the implications of reality. They add to perspectives on yourself and other people. Um, They help to absorb the shocks of life, the slings and arrows of life. Just they're like shock absorbers. Um, they open up space for thinking, for sensing, for feeling, for imagining, for dreaming. They open up options. It just is like maintaining a functional shock absorber system that is also uh, kind of a, a an awareness system, a reality awareness system, a space spacious a space growing system. It's really a wonderful thing. And people don't need to know these skills if they have this, but these skills, knowing these skills can help you. And when you're starting to feel this is not how things are going, things like let's say this, if you don't have these skills, what happens to your functioning? Um, You know, something that comes along in your day, which happens all the time, that's unexpected and undesirable, um, the shock that hits you uh, is not absorbed very well. The space within you about that is not preserved very well. Defensiveness arises. Objective thought thinking or recognition of reality is lost. Complexity is sacrificed for simplicity. Impulsivity is activated. And when defensiveness arises, impulsiveness arises, Um, taking one side of something arises and losing track of the fact that actually there's probably wisdom on both sides. Uh, Thoughts are taken as if they are statements of facts. Judgments are taken as if they are real. Um, The complexity of everything goes down, everything gets more flat, and functioning operates that way, and it sets off trouble in the people around you. So if you lack these skills, 
it's like lacking shock absorbers. I'm driving a Jeep these days that basically you can feel any, every damn thing on the road. Every bump is like a big deal. And if you get in another one of our cars that actually is a more up, up to speed car, so to speak, I mean, and has really good shock absorbers, it's like you can just drive around and because you're not being bumped by every bump, you actually can think, you actually can direct yourself, you actually can imagine things and, you know, so it's, um, it's a big deal. These are hidden, invisible. They're under the hood. This apparatus that I'm talking about that's made up of six and six and six. And within some of the sixes, there's more. Like within the six that are crisis survival strategies, there's a lot of subcomponent skills because within those six includes distracting. But there's like seven ways to distract. And there's improving the moment is one skill, but it's actually seven skills. Is that right? I-M-P-R-O-V-E, yeah. And so there's a, actually there's skills within skills. But altogether, they make up a complex but incredibly valuable uh, infrastructure. And if you have gone over them and you have strengthened all these things and you keep practicing them, and especially you practice them at the little slings and arrows of life, then when the big ones come along, You've got them. You've got them. You can't practice on the big things. The big things knock the crap out of you. So you really can't learn very much except that they knock the crap out of you. And then you learn something from that, like maybe, oops, maybe I better get stronger at maintaining my capacity to uh, to see reality as it is. Uh, so, for instance, in the next two modules that I'm going to teach you, Emotion Regulation Module and Interpersonal Effectiveness Module, these modules are all about standing on the platform of these other skills, having these six, six, and six, having this apparatus, this accepting, objective apparatus, having that there so that while you stand on it, you can work on trying to change your patterns of emotionality, emotion regulation. That's what emotion regulation is all about. It's, a, it's approaching things that you usually avoid. It's taking thoughts on and trying out different thoughts, but it's recognizing thoughts for what they are and then trying to change them. It's recognizing emotional patterns, trying to reroute your emotional patterns. And in interpersonal effectiveness, it's learning how to approach things you'd like to avoid, things that cause conflict, things that are not easy for you to do, things you haven't been reinforced for. And in order to do these things that are change-oriented, you have to stand on on these uh, shock absorbers and these uh, space things that and reality appreciators and all of these things that are part of this apparatus. So very, very important that you get these. They make you stronger all by themselves, no matter what else you do. Okay? So when you teach these skills, one, one reason I find it helpful to lay them out the way I am with you right now is that in the six and six and six way, is that there are so many skills when you first learn them in DBT, whether you're a patient in DBT or whether you're somebody studying them somewhere else, that actually you do, you do need to learn each of the skills one by one, and you can go back over them and strengthen them and practice them in different ways, in different settings. Um, and it can be overwhelming to have all of these skills available, so it's good to have a kind of like a, a way of organizing them in a package so that you can actually remember them, you can access them. You know, it's like knowing how to use um, 50 tools for working on your car, and you have these tools in your garage. If they're all in a pile, 
you've you've gone over all of them, and they're all in pile. You know something about, but actually, it's very hard to get access to them. You want to have them organized in boxes or on certain racks or certain things, bulletin boards, whatever you call those things that you can hook um, things up to. <laughs> you can tell I'm not very skilled in this area. Um, but I am skilled in the idea that you need it organized. And here you can say, okay, is there one of these six mindfulness skills that are all about getting to wise mind and getting clear and becoming more aware and strengthening my attention and my objectivity? Is there any of these I could get stronger at? Is there any of these that are kind of holding me back? Are there any of these crisis survival strategies which are ways to kind of hang in there and not make things worse when the shit hits the fan, when the crisis is hot, when the cyclone is going. It's like, do I know how to stop myself with the skill of stop and open up options and open up space to observe what's going on and then make choices? Do I know how to do the pros and cons of whether I should do a certain behavior or a different behavior? Do I know how to distract my mind by directing my attention to other things that aren't going to be so inflammatory and therefore calm myself down or pull myself away or just change the venue of what's coming into my brain. You know, there's all these fabulous skills and you can go right down all the six and six and six. So I want you to think of six and six and six. I've ne- This is the first day I've ever taught them in that way. But I find this is a really pivotal juncture after covering these two modules that have the six and six and six, and they're really acceptance-oriented, spacious-oriented, awareness-oriented, reality-oriented, shock-absorber-oriented. These sets of skills, you want to master these and get better at these, and you never perfect them, but it's sort of like you just keep working at them and strengthen your ability to. You just get more cushioning in yourself because then you're going to, we're going to turn the corner when we next meet, when we meet, we're not even meeting. You're where you are, and I'm where I am. But you know what I mean. And we're going to actually move on to either interpersonal effectiveness skills, how to get what you want, how to ask what you want, how to say no to people, and deal with all those things, uh, or emotion regulation skills next. How to how to rec- how to understand your emotions and the functions of your emotions, and how to change your emotions. Uh, when you're having suffering bad emotions, how to get more resilient and all these wonderful things, you know, all these things build on top of these skills, right? So, uh, that's what I wanted to tell you. I'll t- let me tell you one thing, because I have two minutes left, that um, I hesitate when I say what I'm doing next, because there's one other thing I think about doing next before I leave the, the uh, distress tolerance skills. And if any of you hear this and want to uh, email me at c.robert.swenson at gmail.com, um, if you have an opinion or a strong opinion, please feel free to let me know about any of these, um, any questions or any comments you want to make. But I was thinking uh, at the end of the module that Linehan has on distress tolerance, she has included a set of skills that are really when the crisis is one of addictions of uh, where somebody's caught in an addiction, whether it be uh, alcohol, drugs, or other kinds of addictions, you know, gambling, and other things. So um, there are certain skills that are added into the manual because of that. And, you know, by, and, and so I was thinking maybe to address the problem of addictions and say a few more things about addictions, um, I'll do that next week before we leave 
this area of infrastructural functioning because somebody with uh, with uh, addiction problems would be additionally benefited not only by everything I've talked about so far as directed or informed by uh, dealing with addictions, but but there are a few skills Linehan added on when she applied it to uh, to addiction. So I think I'm going to do that. That makes more sense to me right now because then I have a break right after that. The following week, I'll be in Stockholm, Sweden, teaching DBT. Um, so I'll be a week off of the podcast, and then I'll be back the following week, and then I'll jump to a new module. So next time, I think I'm going to talk about the uh, add-on skills for people with addictions and include making some comments about addiction problems. Okay? All right, everybody. Have a really good week. Um, use your skills. Um, think about them. Try them out. Strengthen your cushions. Okay? And I'll talk to you uh, in the next podcast. Bye.